This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Jason, what a week. Uh, and it really contained so much volatility on so many different fronts, whether you looked at politics, whether you looked at the financial markets, and whether you looked at the global economy. And we're going to get into all of that. We're going to talk about the coronavirus continuing to spread and investors trying to size up government efforts and corporate efforts, honestly, to mm. contain the outbreak and its economic and business impact. Right. So we tap some of our top editors of the magazine to look at the markets, look at the economy to see their assessment at this point. Also, on the corporate front, Barnes & Noble, man, the next chapter. The new hero of the chain's rags to riches tale, it is a hedge fund. Didn't see that coming. Plus, this week's cover story, what a timely one. It's a sit-down with NEC director Larry Kudlow. Maybe you know him from television. Yeah. He's become the optimist-in-chief in this administration. And there's a big question about whether an optimist will make the right call when it comes to economic Economic policies. All right. First, we begin with the roller coaster that was those global markets this past week. And former Vice President Joe Biden's campaign continuing to rise as Super Tuesday reignited his race for the White House. And that's a story in the magazine this week by Josh Green, Business Week national correspondent, joining us right now from D.C. And Josh, what a week. Super Tuesday, uh, a bit yes. of a surprise. And then we had several candidates dropping out. Obviously, the big news this week was that the front runner in the Democratic race went from Bernie Sanders, who looked like he might be prepared to run away with it, to Joe Biden, who looks like he might have be decisively edging out Bernie Sanders. So uh, quite a week. Everything turned upside down. I think the real story is that uh, non-Sanders moderate voters finally, at the very last minute, coalesced around a candidate. That was Joe Biden. Uh, I think that makes him the front runner. But as I write in Business Week this week, he now faces a new and familiar problem that a lot of Democratic strategists are worried about. And that is that he's back in the role Hillary Clinton was four years ago, where you have an establishment favorite, you have Bernie Sanders as an insurgent, and it's hard to see how Democrats manage to unify the party. All right. And we also saw Elizabeth Warren and Mike Bloomberg dropping out. Mike Bloomberg, of course, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP. He endorsed uh, Joe Biden. Let's look ahead uh, to these next contests here, Josh, because there's still a lot of delegates out there and some pretty important states just over the next couple weeks. Yeah, that's right. And I think I think the importance of Bloomberg and Warren dropping out is that we now have uh, effectively a two-man race. And as you look ahead, uh, it, it looks to me like the states we have coming up tend to favor Joe Biden. The one I'm going to be looking at is Michigan. Uh, Michigan was uh, the scene uh, of a surprise upset four years ago when Bernie Sanders came in, beat Hillary Clinton, uh, caused a lot of excitement and belief among Sanders folks that maybe they actually could knock her off. That didn't end up happening. Since Super Tuesday, the polls that I've seen from Michigan show Biden ahead. So uh, we're really rerunning a test case that we saw four years ago. If it turns out that Biden wins in Michigan, especially if he wins big, uh, I think that might be the last blow for Bernie Sanders. Josh Green, thank you so much. Well, Super Tuesday's results and the coronavirus dominated conversations this week about financial markets and the economy. U.S. Congress agreeing to an emergency spending bill after the Fed jumped in with an emergency half a percentage point rate cut that was meant to calm investors and ease financial market conditions. Well, <laughs> we see how that went. It was a volatile week, to say the least. Let's bring in markets editor Mike Regan and economics editor Peter Coy to make sense of it all. So let's start with that rate cut. You know, Peter, it reminded me, you know, all the way back to the financial crisis. We haven't had an emergency rate cut by the Fed since then. Right. 
uh, the Fed attempted to calm the markets. I mean, the problem is that the Fed can do only so much when you have something like this. It's not primarily a financial market issue. It's an issue with real bodies and real viruses, and it affects the real economy. So production, it affects the supply side of the economy, not just the demand side of the economy. When it's the demand side, you can sort of goose up people's spending by making money cheaper. But when it's supply side, when goods aren't being produced because people can't get to work, that's something that monetary policy is not as good at solving. Right. And so is that why the market just sort of wasn't buying it, Mike? Well, I think the one thing you have to realize when you look at a week like this in markets is that once you introduce that sort of volatility into the market, when you have that steep of a drop over such a short time, it tends to create both up and downward volatility. In other words, a big move down one day and then a big move back up the the next day and then back down. And uh, the example I've been using a lot is the 2011 episode when the U.S. lost its uh, AAA credit rating. Mm -hmm. You saw these massive 3 4% moves up one day, back down the next day back up, you know, and it's it goes to, you know, uh, let's talk about how computerized the equity market has become and how traders in those sort of algorithmic programs are really reacting to, to signals in the market. And they're very good at pattern recognition. They know when you see a big drop like this that there's bound to be a bounce it's not going to last. So it, it all sort of creates this situation where a lot of money's on one side of the boat one day, the other side of the boat the next day, and back and forth. And I think that given all the other news flow sort of causing yeah. uh, you know, it to go one way or the other, that issue, though, really explains the, the suddenness and the massiveness of the back and forth movements. Well, I think it's safe to say that folks were saying the market was overvalued, the equity market. They were looking for an excuse to sell. Having said that, I feel like Peter Coy, there were two different stories being told. The bond market was telling one story prior to like even the concerns about the virus. Equity markets, as they kept going higher and higher, were telling another one. And then this week we had, what, the 10-year go below 1%. I mean, that's a significant move. The 10-year yield going below 1%, we're starting to feel like Europe here. Now, Europe has had negative rates, nominal rates, and now the U.S. is coming down towards the zero lower round, even out to 10 years. And what this means is that there's not much room left for the Fed to act. Right. It's already spent a lot of its ammunition because the Fed, unlike the ECB and the Bank of Japan, has kind of been pretty clear that it doesn't intend ever to let the nominal rates at either the short end or the long end, go below zero. That means we're close, close to doing about as much as they can do right. on the rate itself. So that's economics editor Peter Coy, along with our markets editor, Mike Regan. All right, so this is one of those conversations. I love talking to all our guests, but this is one where you and I look at the rundown and we're like, I can't wait for this. Chris Liu back with us, senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, also former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. He joins us on the phone from Seville, Charlottesville, Virginia. Let's start with, you've been through a few of these. What did (laughs) you see uh, that was new and different on Super Tuesday? Well, I will tell you, that was a surprise to me as well. Um, You would have said, look, and the conventional wisdom was Bernie Sanders was, you know, clearly the front runner. And the only question was, is how much of a delegate lead he was able to rack up on Super Tuesday. So I think this is a pretty, for those of us that spend our time in politics, um, this, this Biden comeback is just stunning. Right. But it ain't over yet, right? Because we still have... Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. 
So walk us through that. Like, you know, what's great about you is we were kidding, you know, earlier that you're someone who's been in the room when a lot of things happen. Like, what are the conversations that's going on, you know, at these parties behind the scenes? And also, what kind of pressure is coming from the Democratic Party overall? Because their end game is beating President Trump. And I don't think at this point with any anyone who's still left in the race uh, that anyone's any party leader can tell them that they should stand or, or go out. I mean, when people like to criticize the party establishment, there really is no party establishment anymore, particularly in a day and age where people can raise their own money online and raise large chunks of money. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- this is going to go on for a while. You know, um, obviously, a lot of delegates were selected, but I always remind people, um, April, May, June, more delegates are awarded those three months. And even right. just in the next couple of weeks, we've got, you know, Michigan, Missouri, Washington State next Tuesday. On the 17th, we've got Arizona, Florida, Illinois, Ohio. So this is going to go on. We literally have a Super Tuesday, like almost every Tuesday for the next month. So I think, you know, and again, with the two front runners, Biden and Sanders, I think they're just going to continue to slog it out. You know, the way that my former boss, Barack Obama, did with Hillary Clinton right. uh, through a good chunk of 2008. So let's talk about some some compare and contrast here, Chris, because, you know, you look at that race and obviously there were some some differences between uh, Obama and Clinton. There were clearly some differences between Clinton and Sanders. And there are echoes of that right now in terms of establishment versus insurgent. How, as someone who knows the Democratic Party as well as you do, how do you assess that, you know, sort of together with the rest of the party? You know, on one hand, you know, when everyone tells me, you know, boy, this has been such an ugly race, hey, go back and look at 2008. I mean, you know, the Obama people called Clinton a a racist. She called us a sexist. She said, you know, you'll remember, she said her big theme was Obama was not qualified and ran this kind of 3 a.m. ad, you know, who would you want answering the phone at 3 a.m.? So it got really nasty. The difference, though, was that ideologically, the two of them were not that far apart. Right. You know, while you know, one was probably slightly more establishment, they were both fairly establishment people. I think here you have a greater ideological difference between Sanders and Biden. Um, but the truth of the matter is, you know, even on something like health care, I think even Bernie Sanders would probably concede that Medicare for all isn't happening, you know, in the next four to eight years. Uh, and that, you know, we as a country have to sort of move incrementally in that direction, the public option being, you know, kind of a first important first step on that. So I think you can even find ways to bridge some of these differences, but they are certainly more significant than in previous years. Chris Liu is with us. He's former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration, senior fellow today at the University of Virginia Miller Center on the phone from Charlottesville, Virginia. So Chris, um, you're probably hearing about it. I mean, lots of headlines continuing to pour out from the corporate community about how the virus is impacting them. You wrote about it. You said the coronavirus is bad. Trump could make it worse. Crisis management does not seem to have been at its best in terms of the U.S. and how they're handling this. Yeah, I think that's an, uh, that's a fair statement. You know, uh, it, for the president to get his arms around this, he's going to have to manage in a much different way than he has over the three years. He's going to have to rely on government experts. He's going to have to make decisions based on science and facts, and he's going to have to be willing to hear hard news uh, and then deliver it to the American people. And, and unfortunately, you know, you kind of see – he, he, he likes he likes to kind of use happy talk to talk about where we are. And there certainly are good things, or it's not as 
I don't want to say it's his dad because I'm not sure we really know what it is. But even on a simple statement of when we're going to have a vaccine, um, he's contradicting his own um, government experts on that topic. And that's just not helpful at this time. Yeah. And so, well, let's dig into that a little bit, because that yeah. does seem to to be part of the problem here is everybody not being on the same page. You've been in a lot of these rooms. Yeah. Who does that fall to? I mean, is it, is that ultimately falling to the president or is there some part of the administration sort of bureaucracy, be it the chief of staff or someone else yeah. who essentially says, look, folks, here's the script. Essentially, here are our talking points. I mean, this is this is not that complicated. No. And, you know, in the first term of the Obama administration, I managed his cabinet, and we had to deal with a bunch of these crises. We had H1N1 uh, in, in 2009. We had, obviously, the Gulf Coast uh, oil spill in 2010, Hurricane Sandy in 2012. So we had an experienced team of people with stability, and we had practiced on this. I mean, unfortunately, we went through many of these incidents. Yeah. And yes, obviously, you want to coordinate the message. So I get that. But some of the news accounts that are coming out are troubling, that military officials, uh, as well as health officials, uh, are afraid of telling the president the truth because he doesn't want to hear it. Um, and and it's that's unfortunate. And so, you know, the president needs to hear bad news. And I think, frankly, he's a little too concerned about what this might do for not even the economy, but really what it does for the stock market, which he then takes as a proxy for the economy, and then he views that as a proxy for his reelection. And if he just simply buckled down and focused on public health, uh, ultimately that does the most to help his reelection prospect. There are certain things you can plan for, and then there are things you cannot. So give us kind of a smart understanding of that. The thing that's going to hit you is the unexpected thing. I don't think in April of 2010, we could have anticipated there'd be an oil spill in the right. middle of the, the, the Gulf of Mexico. But what you have to understand is that the White House can't actually do anything. It's only agencies that can do things. Agencies have money, they have programs, they have authorities. And you first of all have to have a competent, stable group of leadership running your agencies who understand all the levers that you can push and pull. And unfortunately, this has been a cabinet that's had a huge amount of turnover. So then you need those people who know how to run their agencies. That's Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration. He's now a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. And Jason, you and I love talking with him because, as you said earlier, he has been in the room when so much has happened and understands the workings of inside and administration. Well, and as we heard from him, he was involved in crisis uh, response in the administration. He's worked across all three branches of government and, let's not forget, also a superdelegate. Yeah. So he knows his politics as well. Activists out in full force this year, especially the hedge fund Elliott Management, which is involved in two well-known companies. One of the companies making news this week. Another, Jason, of course, is a feature story in the magazine this week. Well, in the news this week, a scoop by Bloomberg, a mm-hmm. scoop by the guy who's sitting with us here in New York City, got part the stock of the team, moving. got the stock moving, got a lot of people talking, uh, including probably, I think it's safe to say, Jack Dorsey. No uh, Scott DeVoe here with us in New York. What's going on at Twitter? Well, Elliot's taken a stake, obviously, and um, we broke this story on Friday night, essentially, that they've taken a stake, nominated four directors, and now want to push uh, Jack Dorsey out of the CEO role. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a big headline and certainly stopped a lot of people in their tracks. What's the case? 
Well, the case is pretty simple, and I think it's something that's been made a few times, is that Jack has he, – he's one of the only people uh, in the world to run two publicly traded – gigantic publicly traded companies. Right. Uh, he runs Square. He also runs Twitter. Um, and you know, late last year, he said that he also wanted to spend up to six months a year working in Africa. Um, and so I think – the argument is clear in that you know he has a lot of things going on. Obviously, he has some divided loyalties between the two companies, um, and that Twitter is something that needs a full-time CEO. Particularly now, we're going to major events like the U.S. election, Summer Olympics. We've got the coronavirus going on, and while those are really great for you know tweet activity, what they do also is create Twitter users and uh, advertisers. So what does Elliot want? I mean, they've amassed, what, about a billion-dollar position in shares it's, of Twitter. It's, it's a little bit more than a, bit more? Yeah, than a billion, yeah. So what do they want specifically? Do they want Dorsey out, no doubt about it? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the simplicity of this argument <laughs> is that and, – and that's why I think it resonated with uh, you know so many people around it is that th- it's a singular argument. Right. You need a CEO that will run this company. And and you know, while they think that you know the the shares have underperformed, you know, relative to Facebook and what have you, um, they do peg a lot of that on the fact that Dorsey is is you know divided loyalty, but also you know. There was a Rolling Stone magazine article I know, last year sometime where he said that he was getting eight and a half hours sleep a night. So right. running running two, you know, one $35 billion company, one $25 billion company uh, and getting more sleep than I do in a night. Right. You know, so uh, I think I, that's the argument. Yeah. But I think that's a really interesting point too because so often – an activist comes in and says, you know, the company need, needs to explore strategic options. Sell they need to cut this. costs. They need to do this. They need to explore all these different things. They need to undertake this review. This is like, boom, we need to bounce this guy. Yeah, and I think part of the <laughs> argument is also that, you know, um, Twitter hasn't um, innovated in a way that right. a lot of its competitors have. So it's always stuck to its kind of core um, model and p- core platform, um, whereas you know Snap or Instagram, um, even TikTok, seem to be more innovative and in creating more consumer-friendly um, products. All right. So meanwhile, down in Union Square, not far <laughs> from where we are, uh, kind of ground zero to some extent of what's going on with Barnes and Noble, yeah. also involving Elliott Management. <laughs> Goodness gracious. They've been busy. Yeah, so uh, you'll recall last year, Elliott, um, through its private equity arm, uh, acquired Barnes and Noble. Um, and you know they've, they were, didn't do a whole bunch of change in the lead up to the holidays because they didn't want to mess with sales at all. But now that we're in the new year, are starting to implement all these changes into the Barnes and Noble chains. So that's what, what we're hooking this story on that's in Business Week this week. Well, you know, and let's just take a step back because before we get into kind of where Barnes & Noble may be going in the future and who may be instrumental in determining where it goes, tell remind us, I mean, Barnes & Noble was the behemoth when it came to selling books before yeah. Amazon. Yeah, you've got mail, right? Like that was totally. the, that, that was the Love you know, that movie. That when, as soon as you become famous and they make like a fictionalized version <laughs> of your business. Fox, like, Fox books, right? Fox's yeah, books, that's yeah. right. And so that was, the, you know, at the, the the peak of what Barnes and Noble was. It was, you know, we say it in the story. It was like the socialization of a Starbucks with the uh, the sales tactics of a you know a dealership, a bargain basement dealership. And so when 
Barnes and Noble was like coming up in the '90s, early 2000s. They, you know, they were the big kid on the street, right? And they had, you know, they were pushing all these independent stores and all of these smaller chains out of the way. And then, of course, we know what happened. Then uh, Amazon started selling books, right? right. And uh, and the e-reader started to come, and all these all these challenges um, ended up beating up Barnes & Noble right. in the same way Barnes & Noble was beating up on everybody else. And that's Scott DeVoe all over the activism beat here at Bloomberg. And that's really taken him into some of the biggest and best known companies, be it Twitter or in this case, in the... And that's taken him inside some of the world's best-known companies. Twitter, obviously, in the news this week. But Barnes & Noble, that's a story I didn't fully understand until I read this piece. Well, and I think Scott makes a really good point when we sat down and talked with him. And he says, you know, Elliot has about $40 billion to deploy. So when they're going to do it, it's not going to be small, unknown companies. It's going to be those household names, those company names that we know. And that's exactly what they're doing. And another company very much in the news that Elliot has its eye on is SoftBank. It has been a week where, once again, the coronavirus dominated conversations about financial markets and the economy. It's also been a week, Jason, where the Fed jumped in with an emergency half a percentage point rate cut to calm investors and financial market conditions. Through it all, President Trump's chief economic voice, well, he was pretty optimistic. I thought you were just going to stop with, it's been a week, because <laughs> it has I feel been like a week. we can say that just about every week, but this one was a doozy. Sean Donnan joins us from Washington. He was in the room where it at a key moment, <laughs> uh, the room where it happened, as they say, with the aforementioned economic advisor. That, of course, is Larry Kudlow. Take us there. Tuesday morning, it's all happening, Sean. Yeah, so Tuesday morning at, at 10 o'clock, uh, the Federal Reserve announces that it's going to cut rates. It's the first emergency rate cut since the global financial crisis in 2008. And I happen to have an appointment at the White House uh, for 10.30. So I'm waiting in line to get into the White House and, and see Larry Kudlow, who we'd been talking about sitting down for, for a couple of weeks. And uh, things had moved around a bit, and, and there it was. So by 10.30... Uh, I, a little shortly afterwards, I'm, I'm sitting down with Larry in, in, in his office, and, and, uh, and that's just as Jay Powell is getting ready to step up and, and, and do his press conference. And what you really get uh, from that moment is a sense of how this White House is trying to ride out this storm. And you know, Larry Kudlow is this relentlessly optimistic figure. He is, we all know him from CNBC, from his TV shows. We all know him from uh, the way he trots out at the White House uh, pretty much daily to try and talk up the economy, talk up markets, uh, and so on. And he has this, this office uh, in the West Wing, which feels like you're stepping into an old school gentleman's club. Uh, he sits at the end of a dining table. Uh, there, there's no computer or, or, or TV in his office. It's an old-fashioned pile of papers, printed out emails uh, on the desk in front of him, uh, and he's there looking out at the at the world's largest economy and what's happening in in, in markets. And uh, they may be crashing, and they did on on that Tuesday. Uh, but Larry was there, the relentless optimist, seeing right. through all of this, and, well, and that tells you a lot about this White House and. And whether they're in denial or whether they simply are, are refuse to be swayed in their optimism, whether that's President Trump's message that he's taking into the into the election or whatever, but boy, they're they're sticking to it. Well, so I, I love your story because you also get in, get get into the background of Kudlow, and we can go there in a moment. But what I do wonder is, you know, you have a head, you know, this is the president's chief economic guy, right? And so you have an individual who runs something, but. 
often has support staff and he's taking cues from different things. But it was interesting to hear no computer, just emails. Like, I'm, I do wonder where Kudlow takes his cues from. Is it, I don't know, where is it? Is it the president? Where does he get kind of the information to kind of help make his decisions or guide the, the, the president to make economic yeah. decisions? So Cudlow has a staff. He's the, the head of the National Economic Council, which has a, a staff of, of policy wonks, and they certainly give him advice. He's also talking to people in the markets and, and, and in business a lot, and he's spending a lot of time with the president. One of the things Larry Cudlow has been very good at doing is, is figuring out where the president is on the economy and where he might be going off the rails potentially on the economy and trying to talk him away from that. Uh, but he spends a lot of time with the president. And so so when you're hearing that optimism and, and that view that he's trying to project, it's it's a lot what President Trump wants right. him to project as well. And that gets into, you know, this is an existential moment for this administration right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are running on the back of what has been a pretty robust economy that is facing the first real crisis uh, on the economic side of his presidency. Well, and Sean, you know, history, both immediately and, and longer term, will talk a lot about this president's advisors, and specifically the advisors in that role. Uh, Let's get into some of the policies where Larry Kudlow has disagreed with the president, has tried to sway the president, maybe to a a more uh, successful extent than his predecessor, or certainly it feels like he has navigated the president maybe a little bit better than Gary Cohn did. I think that's right. Uh, I think it's it's worth remembering that Larry Kudlow, and, and he said this to me the other day, remains a free trader. He does not like tariffs. Uh, but then he got this job on the back of Gary Cohn resigning over tariffs, over the steel tariffs that uh, the president introduced in March uh, 2018 when Gary Cohn lost a, an enormous policy battle inside the White House, got outmaneuvered by Wilbur Ross and, and Peter Navarro. And Larry Kudlow came in knowing that the president uh, had this, this trade policy that was at odds with his own worldview. And he's tried very hard over the two years since, and it's been almost exactly two years that he's been in the job, uh, to, to try and press the, the president in a different way uh, and in a quieter way. I think the, the view inside the White House was that Gary Cohn was a real uh, infighter. Uh, no one sees Larry Kudlow as, as a guy who's very political uh, in terms of or aggressively political mm-hmm. in debates. He makes his view uh, known, but he's much more nuanced in how he gets it across. And I think that is a view that, is, that has worked with, uh, with Trump much better. There's two key moments, really, uh, that uh, Larry Kudlow has won the debate on. And the first of them is with China and the trade wars. Larry was pretty instrumental in convincing Trump to embrace the idea of a smaller deal, of a phase one deal, to try and get to a truce in the trade wars and, and, and reduce the tensions. And that started really back last summer when things were really melting down uh, in the markets again and when President Trump was minded to escalate. Larry kind of talked him off the ledge there. The second thing, and it also came last summer, was when the president around the same time was getting increasingly concerned about the strong dollar. And there was a serious conversation going on inside the White House about possibly intervening in currency markets to try and weaken 
the dollar. Now, Larry Kudlow, for decades now, has advocated his view of king dollar, that uh, hmm. a strong dollar is actually a sign of strength uh, for the U.S. economy and, and, and should be embraced. Uh, and that is at odds completely with President Trump's view. Uh, and he's expressed that again this week, that, that, that right. a weak dollar is, is what he needs to, to help exports. And Larry managed to talk uh, Trump out of, out of intervening in the market. Those are two big moments. And we're seeing it a little bit this year in, in how Trump is, is, is dealing with Europe. Larry has been instrumental as well in in talking the president out of slapping auto tariffs on, on, right. on European imports. And Sean, that's a big deal. Sean, what I do wonder, and you, you make a great point of saying, you know, he's a friendly kind of guy. And for those of us who've had conversations with him, he's pretty friendly, you know, uh, when you're talking to him and he calls people friend and pal, he's an optimist. But I do wonder in this time where we're trying to figure out what the coronavirus means for the U.S. economy, there's criticism of the administration in, in handling it. And maybe we don't know the extent of the virus yet in the United States. Uh, you had the Fed do the emergency rate cut. It felt uh, like we're in a pretty tough situation in terms of the U.S. economy. You know, what's his track record, you know, on catching economic cycles? And will his optimism yeah. potentially make, you know, a misguided step when it comes to guiding U.S. policy, economic policy? Look, and, yeah, and, and that is absolutely the fundamental question here is, is whether uh, Larry Kudlow's optimism is actually going to cloud his judgment in some way. Uh, we are at uh, a, a key moment. You've got to get the calls right here. And Larry in the past hasn't gotten all the calls right. And back in December 2007, he was poo-pooing any talk of a recession. We know now that that is exactly when the recession that turned into the Great Recession as a result of the global financial crisis was getting underway. Uh, he acknowledges that, uh, but he has this, 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 this relentless optimism. Part of it is is political messaging. Uh, there's no doubt that the president wants to be in a place where he's talking up the economy, not talking down the economy. But you can't escape the fact that this week, the Federal Reserve, for the first time since 2008, went with a emergency rate cut. This was not a scheduled meeting that they were moving at. This was a response to a crisis that they saw in the economy. And the White House was uh, refusing to embrace yeah. the idea of a fiscal plan at the same time. And Larry's saying all through this, even as this is happening, Right. literally in that hour that this is happening with the Federal Reserve, that he thinks everything's fine in the U.S. economy. That's Sean Donnan, who covers all things trade and globalization for us here at Bloomberg News. Jason, what I love about this story, and it's kind of what I love about journalism, you're working on a story, which is what Sean was doing, trying to get an interview with Larry Kudlow, and it finally came to fruition this week. And on a day when we had that emergency rate cut by the Federal Reserve, a press conference by Jay Powell. And so this was the guy you want to talk to about where we going in the U.S. economy. It's great, Reid. we got to get back to the financial markets. We sat down with Suzanne Woolley from our Bloomberg Wealth team. As markets faced a wild week, she discussed why now is not the time to buy the dip. In the midst of such volatility is not a great time to rethink your asset allocation. It's really hard at, point, at a time like now to sort of sit on your hands and stick with like a, a well-thought asset allocation that you have, or if your 401k is well spread out between stocks and bonds. Um, being impulsive now can be dangerous. And 
buying on the dip sounds good because we've had 11 years of a bull market and we've been a lot of people have cash on the sidelines they've kind of been waiting to jump in so it's now the time but it's so funny when you say that because there was a fun story last week was it mike regan yeah. about all the metaphors you know uh, climbing a wall of worry but it is like we're at that falling knife, yeah exactly yeah. like yes. we're at that point where there's so much volatility it's like okay so what does this mean and we're all using these metaphors right <laughs> right and we have no clarity you yeah. know i mean there's just no visibility into into much. So buying the dip now seems a little more like market timing. And yeah. as we all know, you know. Bad idea. Uh, yeah, bad idea. Fool's errand is what they always, you know, call it. Because partially when you get out, that's one decision, okay? The harder decision often is to get back in. Right. right? And a lot of people who sort of got out in the last downturn didn't get back in soon enough. Well, and you make such a great point. I mean, this was a number that really stopped me cold. When you go back to March 9th, 2009, mm-hmm. through February 21st, the S&P had a price gain of 393%, 393. Right. And so when you think about a 10% or even more sort of dip in that context, yeah. suddenly the math is a lot different. It's almost like you have to put up sticky notes, yeah. you know, that are like, keep it in context, have some perspective, I'm good with those. you know, <laughs> because 10% in this context, you know, I don't want to talk like a market timer, yeah. but it's not very much. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny though, Susan, I've been thinking a lot about this though, because I uh, often with a lot of our guests on air talk about, you know, also capital preservation, right? Mm. And there is a point where I do wonder, have we made, you know, whether it was last year in the 20%, you know, when we have a strong mm-hmm. market, do you kind of pull back a little bit and just say, I'm good with this, yeah. you know, and then do you wait for when- and take va- some money off the table, Correct, right. Yeah. And, and, or be a little bit more conservative and wait for valuations to come back down. Because I think mm-hmm. about, I hear what you say from the financial crisis, but people saw their investments, you know, cut in half because True. of the financial crisis. True. So like you have to kind of balance that out, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, it all depends on your time horizon, yeah. right? And if you have, you know, how much cash you have saved. Because if you're planning to retire in a couple of years and you really haven't put enough away- you don't want to be having to sell stocks and do a downturn. Right. So in that situation, you may want to pull back a bit and maybe in your 401k, there are stable value funds that you know are reasonable. Right. Not anything like equity long-term returns, but safer. Right. right. Well, and that leads to, I think, one of the most important points of your story, which is it is a good time and a very real time to understand your appetite for risk. Totally. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, you know, we don't really know our appetite for risk until we're in it. And after 11 years of a bull market, there are a lot of people, especially younger investors, who don't know what it feels like to see such a swift decline, you know, and sort of most of us actually think we have more risk tolerance than we do. Yeah. We overestimate it. So now is a good time to sit back and think like, how did that make me feel? Yeah. Did it make me feel panicky? Couldn't I, could I not sleep? Was I worried? Okay, so maybe you want to adjust your portfolio a little bit right now, you know, tweak it um, so that you can sleep better. So that is a... And that's sort of this amorphous thing, but it's very valuable. But yeah, absolutely, and it's real. It, let's let's not forget it. What about um, going into some of those safe safe havens? And I think about the bond market, which mm-hmm. had a good run last year. Right, but you know the bond market raises its own risks. Um, you know, and it's a little bit of a. It's hard to find a haven right now. Yeah, you know, a lot of people have run into gold. Um, that is a tactical move um, that a lot of people have made. That and I've maybe they've with. had their move already. Yeah, yeah, maybe. And um, it, it's hard. I sort of think you just have to think of your basic asset allocation mm-hmm. and pretty much stick to it and maybe tweak a bit. Yeah. But there's not a lot of places to hide now. Right. 
It's funny too. I mean, on our daily radio show, we have a lot of money managers on and they talk about their clients. You talk to a lot uh, on an ongoing basis, but specifically for this story, what are they saying about what they're hearing and how it may be different or what's the general tone? Yeah, from clients. They're um, they're getting some worried calls, um, but they are also getting some calls about like, should I buy now? Um, So they're definitely, you know, at about like 10% down on the S&P, they started getting calls about, is it time to buy now? Buy the dip. And, you know, some advisors are like, well, okay, you know, if you have, if you're still working and you have like one to two years of cash saved, or if you're retired and you have three to four years of cash saved so that you can ride through any market downturn and not have to sell into weakness, maybe. But... um, because is it a time to put some new money? Like this is the, that valuation question, right? It's right. a lot better than it was a couple of weeks ago in terms of valuations, and so many market watchers were were calling for some right. kind of correction, even without the virus concerns. And so, if you do have some new money and you have a safety net put aside, is it an opportunity to kind of get to put some new money to work? I mean, something to think. One thing to think about is that if you have a four hundred one k you're already sort of averaging into the market every month or so whenever your money goes into the 401k. So if you, you know, you could be doubling down on the market if you decide to take, you know, money outside that account. And that's Suzanne Woolley. A smart story, a timely one, obviously, given everything that's been going on in the markets. I know those of us who have dared to look at our 401ks, it's a chilling moment, but got to be smart in this sort of environment. And she reminds us, if you're already in a 401k, you're already buying into the market's ups and downs. So that's something to remember as we face those volatile financial markets. Jack Welch, the much-talked-about former chairman and CEO of General Electric, he passed away one week ago at the age of 84. Someone who knew him beyond the headlines that most of us read is John Byrne. He wrote the book with Jack Welch. It's his autobiography. It was entitled Jack Straight from the Gut. He spent a lot of time with him. More than a 1,000 hours, Mm -hmm. a full year a level of intimacy that really no journalist gets uh, with a source and a friendship that certainly continued. John joins us from San Francisco. So I I have to say, John, first condolences. I know that he was a close friend, a mentor, uh, and someone who gave you a lot of advice over the years, unvarnished. What was your first thought when you heard that he had passed? Well, uh, there was a sense of sadness. Um, He was really a larger-than-life figure, and I know that's almost a cliché, but in his case, it really fits. He uh, squeezed every precious moment out of every minute in his life uh, to get the most out of it. He was fun to be with. Uh, He could be a very um, scary character when he got mad. Uh, He was remarkably intense, <clears throat> he uh, he was wickedly smart, um, and when you were in his orbit, you somehow spe- uh, felt special. Um, you didn't feel ordinary anymore, uh, and that was a, the kind of magic that he had with a lot of people. Right, and he was very much a people person. I mean, he um, and he would go right to it. Well, I- so what, what, whatever, wherever there was some um, something that he could provoke, he would provoke it. Before you wrote the book with him um, in, I think, 2001, you actually first got to know him back in 1998, and and you wrote a story for Bloomberg, or what was Business Week at that time. It became the longest um, cover story in the magazine's history. Take us back. That was in 1998. What was your first impression of him? What was the first time you met him and sat with him? Um, Do you remember that? Sure. Well, uh, contrary to what people think, he never sought the limelight. 
the limelight sought him, mm. and it was difficult for him to actually sit down with a journalist. Um, it took me a year to gain access uh, to do that cover story. So, but once he opened the door, he completely opened the door. I spent four months. I interviewed well over 50 executives in the company. I traveled all over the country to different divisions, and I interviewed him multiple times. <clears throat> and the story really told uh, the, the sort of narrative of how did this one guy have so much influence over this massive global corporation with 350,000 employees and a range of business that was truly mind-boggling from appliances and light bulbs to aircraft engines and um, the aircraft engines and uh, power generation equipment. Um, how does everyone know him as Jack and how does he wield this influence? And it really got inside uh, the motivational techniques that he used to uh, get performance out of the company. He would do these handwritten notes that became prized within uh, GE to people who really made a difference. And, uh, and, and those things hung in their offices and they were just like the amazing, most, the best honor you could ever get. Uh, so I got to know him there. And then as he approached his retirement two and a half years later, he came to me and asked if I would help him write his memoir. Uh, of course, there was no hesitation. Uh, I agreed. To me, that experience was like having a PhD in management or leadership. Uh, I did, in fact, spend well over a thousand hours face-to-face, one-on-one with Jack. Uh, it was the most grueling experience of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we fought a lot over uh, what should be included, what shouldn't be included. Uh, he was uh, very demanding. We went through many, many, many drafts. I can tell you some of the chapters went through something like 18, 20 drafts. We'd sit side by side after I would write. Uh, and to make the manuscript his own, uh, he would go over every paragraph, every sentence, every word. We'd fight over commas and dashes. Uh, sometimes the changes in the manuscript would be so extensive So one time after scribbling all these notes all over the pages, um, he turned to me, grabbed my arm, looked me in the eye and said, you're going to mess this up, aren't you? He used a more colorful (laughs) word (laughs) than mess it up, okay? (laughs) But that was Jack. Yeah. And so what did you learn about him in that process, about him as as a human? Because, again, the intimacy that you gain over that many hours and over telling someone's life story in that level of detail, what did you learn about him? Well, I learned that uh, one of the remarkable characteristics that he had uh, was his love for people. And while he could be incredibly tough on people... um, literally beat them up. Uh, He also, just as easily, could come over to them, uh, wrap his arms around them, and tell them in the most genuine way possible, I love you. Um, And that meant a lot to people. And he rewarded people incredibly generously. You know, we often think uh, in Silicon Valley, and I'm here in the Bay Area, that um, these companies are very generous and buy a lot of talent with stock options. Well, you know, Jack used stock options very effectively in a big uh, conglomerate, uh, made tens of thousands of people uh, millionaires as a result. So if you performed and, and really did well by the company, 
you did well by yourself because he made sure that you were generously awarded for your work. That's John Byrne, who wrote with Jack Welch's autobiography. It was entitled Jack Straight from the Gut. That book selling more than 10 million copies worldwide. But it's great to sit down and spend time with someone who spent so much time with Jack Welch and got to talk with him and see him not only as a CEO, but just as an individual. Yeah, as a human being. Mm -hmm. And he tells some great stories about everything that Jack was. A complicated guy, obviously, a legacy that will continue to be uh, picked apart, but a very human look for sure. And let's not forget, Jason, that's our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. We talked with John Byrne for a long time, so be sure to check that out. So the Bloomberg audience... Loves hearing about anything to do with the auto industry, from EVs and self-driving cars to really cool things like supercars, collectibles, innovation, competition, racing, and more. Just fast cars. (laughs) Fast Fast cars. cars. (laughs) All right. So today we're talking about the business of racing. We have the perfect duo to do that with. 2019 IndyCar champion Joseph Newgarden uh, joining us in our interactive broker studio. So welcome to you. Uh, Also, of course, with us is our auto columnist for Bloomberg Pursuits, Hannah Elliott, who actually brought us Joseph. I I try to bring you the best. (laughs) And if we can't have a two-time Indy champion. Yeah, we're like, uh, champions only, please, Hannah. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So... First of all, congratulations. Welcome. Thank you. Um, So what's the state of racing right now? Well, we're here to just just distract everybody, you know, with all the chaos that's going on right now. We want you to just think about racing and good things. Um, But, yeah, the state of racing is good. You know, we... um, we're, we're still going forward. I think IndyCar is an exciting time for us. We're kind of growing. Um, you know, we've gone through some swings over the last 20, 30 years with just the series, the identity of it, the popularity. And uh, ever since I joined back in 2012, we've just had this nice steady uptick and growth. And, and I th- feel like we have a lot more momentum on our side now with Roger Penske acquiring yeah. the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the IndyCar series. So we feel like the direction of where the, the series can go and really the growth potential is, is pretty enormous right now. All right. I don't know why he's being so serious. What's it like to race? <laughs> it's awesome. I All love right. it. That's I mean, what I want to know. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I grew up, um, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and I played stick and ball sports like most you know suburban American kids. Baseball was kind of my sport as, as, as a young guy. And uh, I always loved racing. I love cars that went fast. What was the first thing you raced? Uh, so I raced uh, just go-karts, traditional like 100cc carts. And, um, you know, they go like 60 miles per yeah. hour, super low to the ground. And uh, there was nothing like that around Nashville, Tennessee. So my dad actually had to take me. Uh, we, we did this round trip, 300 miles up, 300 miles back to Indianapolis. It was the closest karting track to, to Nashville. And we did that. We went up there, figured out how karting worked, and then tried to get into cars. And then you kind of just learn how the you know the series form up, and then how to maybe one day try and pursue a career in, in motorsports. And what I'm so curious, what separates a champion from someone who's really good? And I mean, when you were driving these carts, did you know from an early age? I'm really good. Or <laughs> did that come later? <laughs> uh, it came later. You know, when I was a kid and I'd watch indie cars on TV, especially around street circuits, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a track type that we run on, I'd watch these guys, you know, handle these 750 horsepower, uh, super fast cars in between, you know, 20 foot of walls. Like that's, that's you know, the track was, the walls basically lined the track super tight. And I had no idea how they'd be driving these things at 200 mile, miles per hour on the street courses. I was like, man, there's there's just no way. It looks so dangerous. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, yeah. they are like, it's like riding a raging bull. And yeah. they, they're, they're so masterful when I was a kid watching the, the drivers do it. And I never thought it was possible to answer your question for me to be able to uh, be capable of that. And so I just got into it for the love of cars, the love of racing, the competition. 
And then quickly you learn like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. Like maybe, maybe I'll be able to drive cars one day. And then you get into cars finally and you're like, yeah, I think I, I could possibly get good at this. Was there a discussion you had with your parents about this? Um, yes and no. I begged to, to start racing go-karts since I was like three years old. Okay. Right? And it was always uh, yeah. a no until I was 13. Okay. So it took, it took a lot of convincing to, hey, let's actually go try and do this. And so to go back to what Hannah said, I mean – you understand you're pretty good at it, but then there is that, you know, yeah. matter of, of seconds or milliseconds mm-hmm. in some cases, inches, yeah. feet that separate, you know, a, a true champion, a, a winner from someone who's like, yeah, this is pretty good. Like, what, <laughs> yeah. what's the difference? Yeah, it's honestly, so like once you get to the top level and you're like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at this sport. I'm lucky that I have some talent. It, it's so much more than just being fast or being yeah. inherently talented at something. You have to have such a complete package at the top level of it. Um, you really have to be diverse in your skill sets, and and that a, a lot of what the driver does is he's like the quarterback of a of a football team. Yeah. You know, he's leading the pack. He's kind of directing on everything that we need to do, not only just on a race weekend and at what decisions we make, but also globally, like. How are we developing the race car? What's going to make the race car fast? And all those decisions really derive from the driver. So the driver has to have a really good skill set to lead the team and lead the engineers and mechanics down the right path. That's that's what makes you good at the top level. Is it a case, though, like with any, I don't know, sport, if you will, that the more you do it, the better you get? Like practice, practice, practice? Or that's not necessarily the case in racing? No, no, it's very true. Very okay. true. I think with anything, particularly IndyCar racing. Yeah. IndyCar racing amongst all of motorsports is probably the most diverse. So with now... NASCAR, they're so predominantly oval racing. You know, probably 95% of the tracks they visit are all ovals. For IndyCar, it's split across four different track types. So we race street circuits like I was talking about earlier. They are all so completely different that if you're not good at all of them, you're never going to win a championship. Right. So the diversity that it that it requires to be right. good in IndyCar is, is pretty cool. That's IndyCar champion Joseph Newgarden and Bloomberg's Hannah Elliott. And I have to say, the only challenge of listening to this on the radio or podcast, Carol, you don't see exactly how handsome Joseph Newgarden is. I got to say, Google him. He really is, but so articulate as well. We had a fun conversation. It was not just about what it's like to get into a race car, um, although he did talk about that, but also talking about the broader industry, what's going on with self-driving, cars and EVs. It was a great, fun conversation. Yeah, definitely keep an eye on him. A buffet of incredible stories about the lovely Kate Crater from the year of the noodle to opening a restaurant to simply winging it. And by winging it, we mean chicken wings. I think you just gave her a new nickname. It's called Hot Sauce, uh, which I love. We call her Kate Crater, Katie K. I'm not saying anything. But you did not call her that, I'm just saying. All right, Kate Crater's here with us in New York City. Great to see you. So good to see you. All right, I said to Chris Rouser, who edits Pursuits, I ran into him in the building this week, and I said, you're the noodle. I'm 100% in. And he told me a little bit of the backstory. And you talk about this in the story. Every year could be the year of the noodle. But 2020 really is. Tell us why. 2020 really is the year of the noodle. And I do think like every year people find a dish to fall in love with. You know, for those who go to Morea, there was that crazy octopus and bone marrow fusilli several years ago. Mamafuku Ramen has a lot of followers. But this year, chefs chefs are taking the noodle, the ones who are already experts are going in new directions and then some who have like not been crafting noodles have found or have you know taken gotten religion and are like now we're going to start making some noodles so what are the new directions is it just a different shape or is it a lot of different things it's a lot of different things actually like one thing another thing that's fantastic about it is that i think traditionally or at least i do in new york think about um i mostly think of noodles as italian but 
It's awesome. I mean, not that I don't love ramen, but now it's going in so many different directions. For instance, there's this really popular restaurant called Coat, which is a Korean steakhouse. And they, after Parasite won an Academy Award, they introduced the dish, a dish that um, I don't want to know spoiler alerts, but Chapagari right. plays um, plays a role in this movie. And so they started doing a late night special and it's made with so really good instant noodles, like better than ramen noodles for sure. And they put their fantastic steak in it and they sell out every night. I have to say when I saw Parasite, I will not give anything away about the movie either. But when I saw that in the movie, I thought, oh, I would 100% eat that. Like, <laughs> yeah, you would so, call ahead to get so, some. I would call ahead uh, <laughs> to get that. Let's take a step back because you know so much about food and restaurants and culture and the intersection of all those things. Why do we love noodles so much? Well, you know what? There's something satisfying. It's, it's not something. They are satisfaction. You know, I think like they come in bowls. You slurp them. They're comfort. You probably have a childhood memory of them wherever in the world you come from. A bowl of them, they're so simple. They can be doused with butter or they can get really elaborate. And they really, they scratch the itch whether you know you have it or not. It will always be like someone, you know, putting their arm around you. Yeah. And, for years, for my baby brother for lunch, I would make like, you know, I'd boil some noodles and then with butter. That was like our lunch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, delicious, but right? But there's like, there's something comforting elemental. about it. Elemental. I mean, I think there's something about the elemental quality of it. And, you know, you can certainly find it in a burger or something like that. But there's something about noodles that come too warm, the texture of them, you bite into them, the chew. Now I'm hungry. Well, and the simplicity of yeah. it, ultimately. I mean, sort of what right. you're getting toward yeah. and, and you are as well, Kate, this notion that, you know, even when you're just starting out, either as a teenager or certainly when you're in college, like there's that notion of like, all right, well, you can at least make some I can pasta, do this. Right? right? No, exactly. Yeah. How many, how many noodles, like noodles have saved college students for? Yeah. Decades, what, centuries. What happened though too? I feel like you know the pushback against carbs. Mm-hmm. Like, like um, but yet there's like all these noodles. I think that's something that's actually fantastic about this. You know that there's so. I mean, we can talk about chickpea pasta, and that's of course having a moment too. But it hasn't like pushed conventional pasta off the stage. Yeah. Like conventional pasta is like we are here, and so many different guises. As we were saying, um, this guy. I don't know if you guys know Apudo ramen, but it's like legendary. It's where people wait hours to have a bowl of ramen, and the guy, the chef. Um, has opened his own place in Brooklyn now on Smith Street. Um, it's called something – I can't pronounce the first word of it, but it's like Botan, mm-hmm. Kazaki Botan. Just Google it, everyone. Yeah, okay, Google You'll it. figure it out. And um, and he's doing these – like he's inspired by New York culture. So he's making some broths with um, steak bones, with like major steak bones because he loves the steakhouse culture. And he's making another one. He's using an espresso machine to blend the broth because he likes um, he likes our coffee house culture Whoa. here. That's crazy. So smart. That's really good. So what's the noodle dance? The noodle dance, I'm not going to recreate it here. So you might have to go to <laughs> Flushing to Heidi Lau. But um, it's a really, it's a fantastically popular chain in Asia that opened its first outpost here on the East Coast. And they do crazy things like they'll give you a hand massage because the lines are so long. It's so popular. They offer snacks. Um, they give you a hand massage. But the best thing, <laughs> I mean. the best thing which you guys actually have to go and take a video of is um, if you order these hand-pulled noodles, which is a fantastic thing just to watch a video of. Someone comes up to your table with with like this rope of dough and starts like stretching it out behind your back in front of you. Like it's <laughs> crazy with like and he hits like play on the boombox and so like there's music. It's a party. It's 
wonderful. Well, and it feels like, and you alluded to this at the top of the conversation, even places where you would expect to have pasta are taking it to a new level. Let's right. talk about a restaurant. We've all been there. <laughs> that uh, Their pasta is unbelievable. Their new noodles are unbelievable. <gasps> Restora. It's one of the hottest restaurants in Manhattan. So I got to eat there with you. Uh, what are they up to? That was the best night. Um, but yeah, no, Resdora, so he does. So this guy, Stefano Secchi, the chef, um, worked with Massimo Batora, who's who has been ranked the best, who's the chef owner of one of the best restaurants in the whole wide world in Italy, so he knows his pasta. But recently he started making a double-stuffed tortellini called Doppio Tortelloni, and it's got like two compartments, so better than one, too. So, for instance, for the spring, he's doing like a Parmigiano one compartment will have Parmigiano in it and the other will have prosciutto. Mm. And then it gets like a spring pea sauce because spring is coming. And um, and it's really um, – it's wonderful. Like it's a great it's a great way. It's like showing off. You know, it's someone right. who has like a black belt and pasta right. stepping exactly. up and being like, look at what I can it's do. It's like, oh, cool. You can fill that with something. I can fill this with two things in separate chambers. So, you exactly. know, I'm not sweating it Mike either. Mic drops. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, what's great of that place is I've never felt so satiated, but yet I didn't feel full coming out. It yeah. just was like in heaven. And like my taste buds were just Whoa. All right. So speaking of restaurants, you have a great flow chart essentially in the magazine this week that you put together. And it just says very simply, so you want to open a restaurant, exactly. dot, dot, dot. Uh, walk us through. How do you even put something like this together? Wait, you that, did this with Steven Starr? Um, yeah. So Steven Starr is the hottest restaurateur in the country. Like he's the hit maker. He's the guy behind um so many popular restaurants here on the East Coast from Le Diplomat, where everybody hangs out in D.C. Yep. He reopened Pastis here, which is like the hottest dining room. He did Le Cuckoo a couple years ago, and he also did a Bloomberg favorite, Budokan, mm-hmm. Bloomberg crowd favorite. So um, he knows how to open successful restaurants up and down the spectrum. Yeah. He's fantastic. Um, he has 41 restaurants now. And so we asked him, we thought it was a good moment to ask him, like, what do you look for in a restaurant? Like, how... Do you always go big? Do you sometimes go small spaces? Do you go concept first? Do you line up a chef first? What neighborhoods do you go into? It was, it's fascinating. It's fantastic. Well, and one spoiler here, uh, just for those of you uh, listening or watching in New York, one of the uh, boxes on here is, are you in New York? And if you say yes, <laughs> it's like, forget it. Yeah. Forget Don't it. Do Done. It. Yeah. Yeah. Move on to something else. No, the legislation in New York, you'll hear it from more people than him. Um, and it's, you know, we've seen a lot of restaurant closings in the last year. It's still like, it's still, in my opinion, like the, like one of the best restaurant cities in the world. But it's definitely, it's a challenging time to open restaurants because there's so many laws and the minimum wage has gone up in the last year. So it's, it's not easy. And to that point, and you know, you and I know some restaurant owners in common. And one of the things that I've heard from them is that even, you know, like tried and true chefs, tried and true operators who have had huge hit restaurants, they try and do something else, even if the concept is sound. The economics just don't work. It's really – I mean it's it's a really challenging time to have a restaurant in New York. And so even someone like Steven Starr who really is a hit maker yeah. right. um, is, sees it. Well, on a lighter note, he also says lighting is really important. I love <laughs> I totally that. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, you know what's fantastic actually? This was actually one of my big takeaways from this is that he does not like to go into office buildings because he was like all the glass means you can't have ambiance. Like you uh, want to be able to control yeah. the control – the, ambiance and so lighting is key that's one of his secret sauce things all right so speaking of secret sauce you <laughs> just brought, went right actually there. brought secret sauce uh, you brought some sauce because 
this is just a phenomenal story. This is one of these I'm going to rip out and put on the refrigerator at home. All about chicken wings, which who doesn't love chicken? Like know, if you eat meat, you love chicken wings. They're one of the best foods out there. I can't talk enough about this. So there's this like viral hit show called Hot Ones. I don't yeah. know if you've seen it. Yeah. I don't know if you guys ever want to employ it, which is why I brought you some hot sauce so you can um, so you can try it. But this guy Sean Evans, who's the host, has figured out how to get celebrities to talk by making the meat increasingly spicy sauces and. Um, and so, and he gets everybody like, like A list celebrities. You know what? So the person who's the um, the person who's actually been the best is Charlize Theron because she's from South Africa. Right. So she's actually the star that <laughs> flinched the least, I think, when she ate this like crazy hot one, hot sauce. But um, like Paul Rudd, DJ Khaled, Post Malone, Love any it. everybody, he gets everybody, and it's fantastic. That's Kate Crater. She is our food and restaurant expert here at Bloomberg News and at Pursuits. And who knew that there was so much going on when it comes to noodles. I didn't, but I'm very happy to know about it. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast wherever you download your podcast. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.